Hey, I know you guys want to get to the podcast, but if you're a new listener, there are so many people who we have interviewed at this point, and the coronavirus has given us unprecedented access to all the people we've always wanted to talk to. Next up, Barack Obama. We just had... Um, the, <laughs> had Lydia Yankovska, we, yeah. we had Jennifer Rivera-Rice, we had Russell Thomas, Emily Pogorelts, Justin Werner, Zachary James, Laura yes. Dixon Strickling. All right, all right, that's all right, right, just, right, right. That's just, yeah, that's just during the coronavirus, yeah. but um, That's just off the top of my head during the coronavirus. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I think we're all looking forward to our very special episode where we hold a seance and uh, talk to the spirit of Vox. For an entire hour. Yeah, actually, Ruth Bader Ginsburg is going to join us for that one. She's going to take. Oh, Shaw has something to say. I, you know, the world's ultimate opera fan, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So, um, Renee Fleming and Joyce DiDonato. Um, they both wanted to be on, so we're just going to put them on the same call because, you know, we're going to kill two birds with one stone. So that's, <laughs> that's, that's coming We're just up too soon. busy. We have, we have too many people booked. We're going to put them together. Nene seems fine with it. But seriously, uh, subscribe to the podcast on however you listen to podcasts and then just scroll down into our archives and see who we've interviewed. Usually their names appear as the title of the episode. And don't forget to share on Facebook and share on Twitter, even though we probably are not tweeting. <laughs> Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box School. Wherever you are, however you're listening, welcome to America's Talk radio show that's normally live, but just a podcast for now, about opera, period, from the Ravenswood studio right here on the north side of Chicago. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, connecting you via video conferencing technology with co-hosts Oliver Camacho, Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, and Ashley Hardgrave. All right. Tonight, it's a double header inside the huddle, all about the end of the young artist stage of a singer's career and the transition to management. In our first interview, we talked to soprano Emily Pogorelts, who is joining the ensemble at the Bayerische Staatsoper this fall. Then it's the founder of Stratagem Artists, Justin Warner, a former singer himself, Warner answers some of the most frequently asked questions about transitioning to a managed career and when exactly is a singer ready to have representation. Two-minute drill towards the end of the show. In her infinite wisdom, Anna Netrebko tells her followers to hashtag break quarantine. can't believe that I'm publicizing that. Let's talk some sports pretty quickly. Last week, I mentioned that the Bundesliga, the German soccer league, is open without fans it's just players i think we all know that as a soccer player to play without the fans is shall we say less than inspiring it would it's like making theater with no live audience it's it's not what it's meant to be the geniuses in the bundesliga have come up with the idea that you can pay money to have a life-size cardboard cutout of yourself appear in the stands during a game. So fans win because they get on TV. Soccer clubs win because they get money. And TV companies win because when they look at the stands, they're not A, completely empty, and B, they actually have something interesting to talk about. Could it work in an opera house? Could you donate money for a cardboard 
cutout of yourself, it just might work. You also might want to take a look at what they're doing in the same situation in South Korea. I'm going to leave it at that. Let's talk some opera. Opera Wire described Emily Pogorelts as, quote, pinpoint accurate in coloratura and charm. The 23-year-old American soprano just completed two whirlwind seasons with the Ryan Opera Center at Lyric Opera of Chicago, which included making the semifinals of the Queen Sonia International Music Competition in Oslo, reaching the finals of the Wigmore Hall International Song Competition in London, and being named Most Promising Talent at the Glyndebourne Opera Cup. Now, Pogorelts is preparing to depart from Munich, where she'll join the ensemble of the Bayerische Staatsoper, and if their season goes as planned, she'll be making leading role debuts in The Marriage of Figaro by Mozart and Humperdinck's Hansel and Gretel. We thought this was the perfect moment to get a snapshot of a singer transitioning from young artist to rising star. Before we hear her interview, let's listen a bit of Emily's concert with Chicago Civics Orchestra, conducted by friend of the show Michael Christie. Of this performance, Vocal Arts Chicago said, quote, Pogorelts is demonstrating mastery of her instrument and maturity of her stagecraft that belie her youth. Born Cup at age 21 and ended up winning the most promising talent award. So they kind of didn't know what to do with me after that because I was so young in this field. And luckily I was going into the Ryan Opera Center for my training. So I had a little bit of time to, you know, kind of keep studying and keep mulling so that um, when the time was right, I could eventually start doing roles. So um, it ended up being a great window of time between my first and second year at the Ryan Opera Center. And um, I ended up doing just a few auditions, but ended up having a choice between another major opera company in Germany, not Bayerische, but ensemble there. Um, but kind of they do this thing that they don't really talk about, actually, in um, Germany, where it's the Stipendiat which is a year where um, it's like partially funded by um, an organization and partially funded by the company. So that big stone into ensemble, but it's not like quite exactly ensemble. It's like really interesting. No one really talks about it. So when I got it, I was like kind of confused. Yeah. So I ended up yeah getting studio at Bayersha, which is, you know, like we discussed a little bit, like the Ryan Opera Center in the sense that you do smaller roles at the company, but you have a lot of training behind it, voice lessons, master classes, all those kind of opportunities. Um, but they offered me Gretel, which was such a big role for someone in the studio. And I, I had some cool op performing opportunities at Lyric, but that would by far be like the biggest thing I had yep. ever really done professionally. So, I actually chose the studio over the ensemble position, uh, partially because of that, partially because just the reputation that the Bavarian State Opera has, they just, they really do a good job of getting amazing singers 
and I kind of wanted to learn around that environment. But um, weirdly, I had accepted the I had accepted the offer, but not signed the contract. They asked me if I'd be interested in auditioning for Ketobino, and which is not in my fach. I'm a soprano, usually singing quite higher than Ketobino. Like and, a full octave um, higher than they Ketobino. They asked me to submit, like a whole octave higher. Yeah. <laughs> so they asked me to submit a videotape of me singing the two arias, and I recorded it. I I looked horrible. I looked. I can't even describe to you how bad I looked. I was sick. I had like dark circles under my eyes. I looked a little crazy. Like my eyes were bulging. I sent like the stills to uh, the pianist who I made it with and she was laughing. That got me the role and got me promoted to ensemble. <laughs> because there was some Weird. director who was Intendant like, that's my concept. I'm looking for uh, a consumptive carabino. <laughs> I'm looking for that. <laughs> Yeah, whacked out Ketabino, sung by a soprano, got me that job and ensemble. So I got a whole new set of roles, and um, yeah, I'm going to be there for the next two now, years. Does, does so that, that's crazy. Does that scare <laughs> so you? So that was my weird thing. I I chose. Does so, that scare so, me? Yeah. So uh, this is. I'm, I'm sorry. The Zoom, the whole Zoom thing. It's really hard to like have these types of back and forths, but. You know, you were prepared mentally to go into Bayersha as a studio artist and, you know, be still honing your craft. And now you're basically being brought on as a principal artist. Would it be fair to say that? Yeah. But I guess for me, I knew I was I knew I was ready. And I really took studio, to be honest, really with the goal of getting ensemble. So it was crazy that they believed in me that much to promote me. Also, I mean, for sentimentality, I've been with my voice teacher, Julia Faulkner, since I was 15. And she was a member of the ensemble at Bayresha. So it was a huge honor for me to kind of follow in her footsteps. That made it seem, it made it feel right. What's scarier is like the, the moving to Germany in the time of a pandemic. That's the scarier thing. Okay, well, we'll talk I about think. that. <laughs> it's just, it's a little uncertain and a little crazy. So um, yeah. I do want to hear a so little bit about... That's, that's really the thing, the only thing that scares me. I do want to hear a little bit more about um, what's been happening mm -hmm. at Ryan Opera Center, but we'll, we'll push that to a little bit later. Can you talk about now um, management and what it's like to maybe be shopping around? Or I don't know, are you already represented at this point and what that whole process has been like? Yeah, you know, I, I when you mentioned talking about this, I thought it was perfect because I... When I, when I began the process, I really knew nothing. I knew that getting a manager was good and um, you needed to wait till the proper time to do it. Uh, for me, that was, it was the right time because I was afraid to, you know, either turn down opportunities or say yes. And I didn't really know how to word it in an email, you know? I mean, because it's all, it's not just... Being an artist is not just showing up prepared artistically and, you know, notes learned. It's also, you know, how you represent yourself off the stage. And I was so scared of saying the wrong thing or having the wrong thing communicated. Also with the cultural differences, especially in Europe versus America, it's it's a kind of a, it's a delicate balance. And so I got to the point where I was having to say yes and no to things and... 
I wanted to make sure I was doing it right. So I was approached, I was in the lucky position to have done enough things professionally to be approached by management. And I was promoted by um, a few amazing people, but I really had my eye on who I am with, Sam Snook, from the beginning because I loved his energy. I loved his total belief in his artists and Honestly, what was really funny was he was the last one to approach me. I was waiting for him. It's like a boyfriend almost. I was waiting for him and he took his sweet time. (laughs) And, uh, but when we finally met for coffee and we started talking about, you know, what our goals were, what it could be a professional relationship, we had a lot of agreement in our ideas. For me, what he asked me what I wanted out of my career And I said, I don't care necessarily where I sing. Obviously, I'd love to sing in great houses, but I want to have an international career. I want to have a career in Europe and I want to have a career in the U.S. And that was like super important to me just because I wanted to have the experiences that would fuel, you know, my artistic growth. So he was really supportive and in agreement of that. And also he contacted my teacher to talk about me as well. And I really wanted her, especially at the beginning stages of my career, to be a super big part of everything I do, every decision I make, just because when you are so young, you know, it is hard sometimes to say no to exciting opportunities that might not be right. So Sam, like, ticked off all the boxes for me. He was respectful. He was so for, for in belief of me. And the other thing, though, is that they really don't tell you how to have a manager, which has been really interesting, right? Because as a young artist, you're kind of told where to be all the time and how to act and how to act around donors and how to act in a rehearsal room. But no one really tells you how to be the boss of your own company in a way, because like as a singer, you know, you're the product and your agent's trying to sell you like a good salesperson, but you also kind of have to give that direction. And, um, I, you know, struggled with that a little bit in the first, you know, couple months, six months trying to figure out, you know, well, what is he going to tell me? What is he not going to tell me? Like, how how are we going to work this out? Like, how often should I text him? If I text him too much, will I be annoying? Like, all these different things. I mean, it sounds really silly, but I didn't want to be someone that every time he got a text from me, he was like, oh, that girl. So I was lucky enough. I took out my one of my favorite singers of all time and mentors for lunch, Petra Shurisette, and I asked her about how she did it because I think that Pat really embodies like boss lady in the best way possible. And she's had such an interesting career full of artistic integrity. So I wanted to know how she would advise a young singer to work with a manager. And what she told me is she said, girl, you got to captain your own ship and you got to be fearless and so that's been kind of the way that I've been leading. I, I, I know that sometimes it's, it's better to, you know, respectfully always push for the things that you want. And if you don't get a response, you know, 
give a little nudge. So, so. yeah, I, I love the comparison that you made in the beginning to sort of dating or waiting for the boyfriends and trying to figure out how to navigate that because I think it's true. I also think it's true that, you know, even at the best music schools that we we have in the U.S., you you don't often get to learn the business side of the business. You don't have time. You're trying to master repertoire. You're trying to master musicianship. And I think the same is very true. And it's so wonderful of you to be this cognizant this early on to be like, nobody really taught me how I need to work with them with an agent. Nobody taught me how to work with a manager and things seem to be going at a pace in which I am going to need this skill set and need it fast. Also props to you for saying, I called up one of the people I admire the most and it happens to be Patricia with that. That was, I, I giggled. I hope that didn't pick up on the, on the recording because I don't want it to seem like it was disrespectful. But I was like, Oh, this is so great. Um, so, so in, in doing all of these things, um, when did you, when did you sign with, uh, Sam and IMG, by the way, how long ago was that? It was the summer that I started Ryan Center. So it's been about two years. In July, it'll be two years. And, and he's gonna, he's gonna stay with you as you, as you go over to Byrusha, or what is that gonna look like when you, when you move? So right now, he's my international management, um, things are not completely worked out. You know, we, one of the things that we talked about in the early stages, which I was so happy we talked about this, but I was advised to talk about this is if he would be opening to uh, open to working with another manager in Europe, he said yes, but he also said, you know, it's a partnership that there are specific agencies that I like working with in Europe. There's others that, you know, don't play that way. Ask and us holds. They want to be your one and only. So it, you know, it would take, I think, a special manager from there in order to both work with Sam at IMG, who I'm very intent on keeping, and, um, you know, someone like that. So we kind of had that conversation and we're really open to it. But um, right now, I think that it's all about how things go in the first year. Because, you know, with all these amazing opportunities that I have in um, Munich, there'll be a lot more people watching from Europe. So it's going to put me on a stage where I'm seen in a different way, at, not as a young artist. So I think that that's going to be a bridge that we cross in the upcoming year or two. It's an open exciting. relationship. <laughs> yes, it's an open relationship. But isn't it, isn't it true, though? It is such, it is so like a relationship because... It's consensual non-monogamy. That's what you're practicing right now. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> very modern, very 21st century. <laughs> Well, and actually, Ashley, I wanted to mention that, you know, I, I did go to a great school, went to Curtis, love it, amazing place. And we, we did have people come in uh, to talk about professional things. However, the business in the past 10 years has changed so much. So a lot of the people that we brought in while they were excellent mentors and teachers, nothing against them, they sometimes didn't have the, you know, sensibilities of today what's going on now uh so that it's kind of like a throwing into the fire sort of thing you got to try and see how it goes so emily it's really funny you mentioned that because i remember feeling when i was in school like even if you kind of understood how the process for getting into the young artist program circuit worked everything after that was kind of like a black box what were what did you find surprising what what were your experiences with taking that next step and how you know, what surprised you about it? And what did you feel actually really prepared to step into? I think, well, I'm, 
I'm type A. I mean, a lot of people, a lot of opera singers are, uh, just for the nature of the business, how much work we have to put into what we do in order to perform it, right? Um, so, like, first, I was like, why aren't things happening? Why aren't things happening? When are things going to happen? What can I do to make that happen? And a lot of it was they had to come to me, which is a good lesson for me in general. <laughs> but um, things played out kind of by themselves and I needed to trust the process and it took a lot of my very patient mentors telling me sleep on decisions wait and see it was a lot of waiting and trusting that things were going to go in the right direction it actually didn't have a ton to do with me I mean I prepared to get to that audition I prepared my arias I I worked really hard I made sure that you know I was in good physical health to do the auditions but um, but also, I must say, I've done a couple house auditions where they didn't go well. So I was lucky to do one, you know, the, the, a year prior to that where that didn't go well. It was actually the Komisha Opera where it just, it was kind of a mess, but it was my first one. I didn't really know how it was supposed to go, but I learned from it. I learned from how I felt that day and how I felt I sang and... Um, took that so that eventually I did have a successful audition when the opportunity presented itself. But once I had that audition, I kind of had to just let it go and hoped that they would believe in my talent as much as I believed in myself. Luckily they did. So, so I have that's a, the sort of thing. I have a two-part question for you, so it's going to take you a while to answer it, so I'll, get you, I'll let you wind up. Um, one is, you know, it's graduation season, and a lot of you know, college and high school students have had to deal with not having a proper send off. And I feel the same thing happened for this outgoing class of Ryan Opera Center. And it breaks my heart because so many of the events that would happen around this time of year uh, are not happening. So we don't see these last performances of people like you and Mario Rojas and Eric Faring, etc. So I'd like to hear about what it's been like to wrap up your season, your your last season with Ryan Opera Center, and also what were some of the things that you guys were doing as final performances that have been moved online, <laughs> which uh, and you were also talking about maybe coachings and lessons, how that's been, you know? Yeah, well, it's we got really lucky because of the ring cycle. Our Rising Stars program got moved to January. That would have been so tragic for all of us to not have had that opportunity because really rising stars for anybody that you know is in chicago and that doesn't know it is the chance for all of us to work with the lyric opera orchestra to sing on stage at lyric opera and to really have interesting repertoire i mean craig terry our music director does a really good job of picking stuff kind of off the beaten path so i mean this year eric faring and i got to sing a wonderful ralph vaughn williams duet that I had never heard of. So that was really fortunate. And we did our fundraiser as well. So we were really, really happy that we got to do that. Though one thing that was canceled for Ryan Center was uh, the Ring Cycle recitals, but they hadn't really been planned yet. So it wasn't that bad. What did move online though was um, a lot of coachings and lessons and also, we kind of started to build what is now happening, which is Ryan Center at Home, which um, Craig, is, Craig Terry is amazing 
at programming, really fun programming. He does his series at the Harris Theater, Beyond the Aria, which um, is just such a good mix of popular music that the audience will enjoy, but also has a real personal touch to it. So we kind of started then thinking about what we could do as the Ryan Opera Center to kind of become, you know, the face of lyric opera, because, you know, what is lyric without, you know, performing? It's um, the people behind it, the chorus people, the orchestra, the young artists that, you know, are a community even behind the scenes. So right now they are um, working a lot on licensing, which is really interesting, something that we kind of learned about. They're doing a series right now, and my, my video, I think, is going to come out either next week of all things from the 1920s that are in public domain because uh they uh wanted to make sure that they had the rights to put it up on the website so i i'm doing an amazing arrangement that our pianist madeline said it all made of my buddy which is just a fantastic song so we've we've been collaborating on that and also trying to figure out creative ways on how we can curate series like that uh, make it more accessible. Actually, that series is going to be all around Chicago for seniors. They're going to be able to listen to a concert of all those songs from the 1920s uh, that we've created. But then all kind of keeping the mood light, doing a lot of fun things like the Italian street song. And I know that uh, my colleague Kaylee did Boom all these really fun things because uh, as Craig was kind of saying, he just wants people to smile. He wants people to be happy during this time that is so uncertain. So that's a lot of what our programming fo focused on then, uh, finding things that we feel passionate about, but we think other people will feel passionate about as well. But uh, the crazy thing is all the coachings and lessons. I mean, having a new way to coach via Zoom and all that stuff. The first thing was we all had to buy mics, so I'm talking on mine, and to make sure that the audio quality isn't like totally distorted from our computer audio, which is kind of a new thing for all of us, I think. What I've been doing with Madeline, who is still coaching me, is um, she'll send me piano tracks and I'll work on them with a Bluetooth speaker and record them back. And then we have like note sessions kind of like doing an opera in itself. We sit there and we go through the score and she goes, you know, at rehearsal number 16, you were flat, be better. <laughs> so it's kind of, it's, it's changed it to something that in itself is very different, but also very beautiful, I find. It's much listening and responding and also a little bit of realizing how good it is to collaborate in person where you can kind of, realize the sensibilities of another person so yeah it's been it's been very interesting but I think that everybody's handling it really really well at the Ryan Center and uh back to the mic question this is a tiny one and then we'll keep going but um is your mic the the one that everybody's raving about the blue something something yes the blue yeti yeah that's I was like it's blue and a monster but I couldn't remember which monster so thank you for that yeah do you I mean you like that mic I do I mean it's it's, it's been a challenge. Uh, uh, what's hilarious is that um, I was very precocious from a very young age. And so um, I learned how to multi-track in high school when I decided that I could do the arrangement of Eleanor Rigby by myself. 
just as good as my choir. <laughs> Little did I know that those skills would come in handy now, uh, using GarageBand, using a microphone, trying to figure out, you know, the balances of things. Because um, one of the struggles that I've had with my Blue Yeti being an amateur at all this is um, struggling with my reverb, struggling with how this microphone, which is great for, you know, podcasting and great for kind of the more modern ways of, you know, playing guitar and singing deals with an operatic sound. I mean, it's a lot. It's just the spikes all over my garage band are uh, disastrous, but, um, but it's been really fun to kind of play around with how to record. And um, there's so much accessible to us now via YouTube and through, you know, communicating with friends who know more than you. So it's, it's been a challenge, but it's been really rewarding for when things go right and you learn how to do things on your own. And I honestly think that a part of this will always stay. For me, I found that I am the most productive when I have a piano track first. And I think I'm hoping, hoping to convince all my pianist friends <laughs> that um, we can do that even after the pandemic is you know, done so that, you know, you can kind of take with you audio tracks. If you're preparing something quickly, you have it right there. So I think that that's kind of one of the pros. And I know that other people feel that way as well. I want, I, if we get, if we're editing, and can circle back a little bit. I mm -hmm. want to know a little bit about how you are preparing to live in Germany and, and what your, how, what your thoughts are about that. I mean, how am I preparing? Well, I, Thank God I got into a German class like right away. So that's been the process right now because one of the reasons why I'm really excited to live in Munich versus Berlin is uh, part of the reason that's going to make it so challenging. They have, they really want to speak German. They really don't want to speak English. So I'm really preparing for the language aspect the most because I mean, I love communicating, so, you know, not being able to communicate fully is going to be very frustrating at first, but I know I'm, I will be able to be fluent because I'll just have to. <laughs> the other thing is, um, you know, navigating the cultural differences, um, finding an apartment is something I'm actively um, working on right now, which is good, but the fact that when you go to Germany, Sometimes you don't have a kitchen. It's just pipes in the walls, that sort of thing. And you have to buy your own kitchen. That was something that was so foreign to me that now I know very well. And kind of figuring out all the different ways that one can come about finding an apartment through friends, through website, through all that sort of stuff um, that I kind of took for granted. You know, here, you know, I moved to Chicago. I showed up to an apartment. They showed it to me. Then I signed a lease. It was so easy. Whereas um, Munich, it's a very competitive process. So um, I'm kind of gearing up towards learning all my useful vocabulary <laughs> and um, also kind of learning, learning about the culture as much as I can before I move because it's very different. At least Germany, you know, I, I'm really pleased with the culture and how good they are at following rules and also how much they love opera. Because when I did my audition at the Bayerische, I, it was like a Tuesday or something. So I got an opera, I got a ticket to the opera that night. And on a Tuesday, packed house, so excited to be there. 
it was the La Traviata with Eileen Perez. And um, we were all very excited to be there. And there were people even in the standing room just so excited to experience that on a Tuesday night. The appreciation for opera and classical music in Germany is just the most beautiful, wonderful thing. And I'm so excited to become kind of part of that culture. First century American aria at an audition. Coming up, America's Dog Radio Show about opera. This is Opera Box Score with George Cedarquist, Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, Ashley Hardgrave, and Oliver the Man Camacho. Founded in 2018, Stratagem Artist is a boutique artist management company dedicated to representing a select rock star of classical singers. That includes friends of the show Emily Bersan, Jordan Rudder, Zachary James. In our second interview, highlighting the transition from young artist to principal artist, creative consultant Oliver Camacho speaks with Stratagem's founder, Justin Warner. Now, Warner began his career in opera as a singer, founded the now-defunct New York Opera Exchange before interning at IMG Artists, and eventually he decided to start his own shop which is where we pick up that conversation. Yeah, I mean, our tagline is artist-driven collaboration, and I think that's very apt to what we do. We are incredibly hands-on with each client, creating a unique and bespoke experience for all of them, not only in figuring out you know, a five-year, 10-year, 20-year plan for their career, but also just engaging in their auditions, engaging in their repertoire, and just being involved in their lives, both you know, classical musically or not. Um, I think that the relationships we have on a personal level are incredibly important to informing our professional relationships. Well, let's start with that. Um, when is an artist ready for this step in their career? So I think it totally depends on FOC, on age, on training. There's all sorts of variables out there. I don't think there's a specific age or after you do a certain program that you need management. Um, you know, for example, a lighter voice soprano singing Blonchen and things like that is probably going to be ready for the roles they'll sing for the rest of their career than a dramatic tenor, for example. Um, you know, I think... Did you say drag? A, did you say drag tenor? No, no, dramatic tenor. Dramatic tenor, okay, because that is a fock in, like, Venetian opera, like those high tenors that sing nurses and stuff like that. So I was like, oh, wow, you have a whole category for that. <laughs> yeah, I'd say that's less... Uh, prominent here in the States, but no, that's good to know. Um, <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, I think the preconception in the business is that once you get management, you've made it, you need management to have a career. And I actually think a lot of singers are pursuing management too early and don't really have anything to manage. Um, I think management really, it'll help you procure opportunities you couldn't get on your own or auditions you can't get on their own. But there's so many things, especially young artist programs and smaller main stage companies that are more than willing to deal with unmanaged singers and in some cases prefer to deal with unmanaged singers. Um, so if you feel your career is at a standing point where 
you can't manage your own calendar where you're, you know, fighting off gig offers left and right. You probably need someone like me to help manage your calendar and to shape the career path. But if you're someone who, you know, is getting a lot of gigs on their own, but is managing that, why pay someone a commission? Um, and why, you know, add someone maybe not necessary to your team. Um, so, you know, when we're getting singers for the roster, um, they're usually coming to us, but it's a wide range of talent level that reaches out to us on a regular basis. Um, and, you know, the majority of singers that we sign, we've heard at a competition or an engagement or, you know, we've tracked people for years before we sign them. So, um, you know, I think management is, of course, a very helpful tool in continuing the career, but not something that is the be all end all to success. So how does it work exactly to have a manager and what is sort of your like day to day tasks with managing a singer? So I think splitting it into the manager side and the agent side is really important. Um, you know, I'm asked about the show Entourage often, whether, you know, are you the Eric or the Ari? And I think, you know, in opera, we can't afford to do both. So, you know, I play both of those roles and um, there isn't that split between two individuals doing the career planning and, you know, real consultation part of it versus negotiating contracts and procuring auditions and things like that. So, you know, I think the more important part and more interesting part to me is the management part, is developing that 5, 10, 20-year plan for the career to put singers in the right places at the right time to make sure that they, you know, are working on the right repertoire, doing the right auditions, um, and singing for the right people at the right time, um, where the agent side of it is more you know, negotiating contracts and making sure that singers are, are being taken care of in that way, which of course is important. We all need to get paid. But I think the, you know, developing a repertoire package, really cultivating a, a singer and figuring out what the right pieces are for that repertoire package and, you know, for the repertoire they're singing is incredibly interesting to me. And those puzzle pieces are definitely why I find my job most interesting. In the wine business, uh, which I was briefly a part of, um, there are these people who taste wine in the barrel and can tell you, oh, yeah, in like 12 years, this is going to drink beautifully. You know, what are some of the things that you look for when a singer is still in their young artist era of their life? To, you know, what are you listening for? It's like, OK, I can I can tell you that that's the voice that's going to become a great Strauss singer or something like that. Yeah, I think that's a great analogy, actually, and what a, a wonderful job. I feel like I'm doing that uh, on a daily basis. Um, so I think for me, it's a divide between the tangible and the intangible. You know, I think a lot of people can judge, is the singer singing in tune? How is their diction? Um, is it the right repertoire for their voice? Is it technically sound? Are they a good actor? You know, those things are pretty definable in a way, but I think that the magic of opera is that, you know, there's so much in the ether. There's so much undefinable star quality, spark, whatever you want to call it. I say that my singers make me smile when I watch them. And they're singers who I would want to watch in a wide variety of repertoire who just, they bring you into their world instead of pushing it out at you. Um, so there's so many good singers, functional singers out there who I think will have really nice careers and, and will be successful. But for me, I want to represent singers that I really feel passionate about and that I believe in wholeheartedly. And I think that 
X factor is what sets a singer apart from us taking them on the roster or not, where we have both a connection between talent and journey, but also just a, you know, a personal relationship where you have that spark and you realize, you know, it's, it's a good pairing. Um, you know, getting a manager is a lot like dating. And I think sometimes, you know, right away, sometimes it develops, but you know, there are also singers who I've heard in the past and not really gotten that feeling and that spark. And I hear them years later and, and there it is and, and vice versa. So, you know, I want to find that star factor as well as functionality on the roster. Do they sing stuff for our roster that no one else sings? Are they going to have a specific spot? Um, you know, that functionality and, and roster construction is also incredibly important. But, you know, I think, when you hear a singer you love, you know, and I think any opera fan feels that way as well. But for us, it's also constructing the career from that initial attraction um, and being strategic about it. Okay. You touched on a couple of things I want to circle back to, but uh, the one that's fresh in my mind is that in building the roster for Stratagem, as a person of color, do you ever think about, I need to have a more diverse roster? Yeah, I... Um, that's a question that's come up a lot during this time. Uh, I think it's incredibly important to think of diversity, but not define one by diversity. You know, as one of the few managers of color in the business, I'm definitely asked that question more than others. Um, and I've been cornered by singers of color and asked, why don't you have more black singers or Asian singers or Latinx singers? And, you know, I'm never going to sign a singer because of their ethnicity, because of their height, because of any sort of physical factor, um, you know, we're signing someone because we believe in their talent and we feel like we can cultivate it. And I think even more so than that, you know, making sure singers aren't defined by their race. Um, we have a singer, Kristen Choi, who came to us really, you know, having come off a season where she sang three women of Asian descent and, and sort of was getting pigeonholed within that repertoire. And I think it's a great way to get in the door to sing Suzuki after Suzuki, but there's a ton more to her career than that. And we've been really successful in cultivating the companies that hire her for Suzuki to bring her back for non-ethnically specific repertoire. And I think we, you know, I as a singer was told that I'd be stuck in Asian roles by multiple people. I was told by a, a very prominent director that I would have trouble showing emotion because Asians don't have wrinkles on their face. I mean, you know, I was... <laughs> assumed I was a pianist by multiple auditioners at the beginning of my manager career. And I think the opera world has become a lot more inclusive, even since I started managing, but those implicit biases are around all the time. And I think, you know, of course, diversity is incredibly important to me and those stories deserve to be told and probably aren't told as much as, you know, um, the, old school European stories that are told in a lot of opera. Um, but I would never sign an artist because of their race or because of their sexual orientation. They're just, that's part of them as people. And, you know, embracing that is important, but not defining them by that. It's incredibly important to me as well. Well, there's stuff we could dig into there, but I'm going to let that one rest for now. Uh, and I'm going to ask you about, um, you say you're a hands-on company. Do you ever feel very strongly about uh, taking on a client, but you realize that maybe they need like 
acting coach, or maybe they could really work on, you know, something about their image or maybe something about their, their technique or their diction or something like that, and then try to match them up with people who you trust to develop that skill or that facet. Yeah, we absolutely give them that feedback. We do not require anyone to study with a specific teacher, to do headshots with a specific photographer, to have their website designed by a specific designer. Uh, we definitely have suggestions. We have a running vendor list for our clients of people that we trust. But if, you know, a singer has someone that they've already worked with that they really like, we're more than willing to continue that relationship. And <clears throat> I think for us, an analogy that I've heard a lot is, you know, as a manager, we're just part of the toolbox. We don't want to replace the other tools in the toolbox, a voice teacher, a coach, a mentor. We just want to amplify what the singer is getting in terms of mentorship and advice. And I think we definitely are very hands-on about image because it's important to the career. Um, you know, my colleague Zoe has been giving website consultations to our artists throughout this crisis because we have time to look at that now. I definitely have a very specific aesthetic about headshots and about audition wear and, you know, how singers are presenting themselves and, and controlling what they can control. Because I think if you come in with a sloppy resume with spelling errors, like you've already sunk your audition. And that's why Stratagem is really standard Arzard press materials. They're very, very clean, very simple. Um, so we can control that aspect of it. So the singer can go and, you know, kick ass at their audition and, you know, get hired, hopefully, um, instead of worrying about the variables that I think distract from the audition, whether it's something someone's wearing, whether it is, you know, a quirk in the conversation before an audition, you know, I think the last thing you want in an audition as a signal is for someone to be staring at your materials. Like you want them to watch you sing. And, and watch you perform. And, you know, when I hear singers at the university level, even at the young artist program level, there's often times where the materials are incredibly distracting. And I think that's so easily avoidable. And for our singers, we definitely take that off their plate. You know, when I, when I pitch a singer, I tell them they never have to update a resume again. And I think that's really attractive to singers that they don't have to worry about that upkeep and maintenance. Um, so, you know, circling back to your original question, I think we are definitely very forthcoming with any feedback and I think very proactive about if we see something that we think is derogatory to the career, we'll definitely speak up, whether that be a vocal issue, whether that be a headshot, whether that be a website. Um, you know, recordings on a website that are years old, that can sink you in a lot of ways, especially in a situation now where we might not have a live audition season this fall. I think having up-to-date recordings as much as we can is incredibly important for future engagements. Um, so yes, we're incredibly proactive about these things. And I think that's just part of being part of the team is to, to have the trust and relationship with each client to, to feel comfortable having tough conversations. So you talked earlier about how uh, matching with an artist is sort of like dating uh, can you describe a little bit about the, you know, where you first hear singers and how you kind of put them in your like, oh, you know, check back on this singer later on. And then like when singers approach you, that whole matching process. Can you tell me a little bit how that works? Yeah, I think managers are everywhere and nowhere at the same time. It's this weird, 
you know, we're in the ether, we're at competitions, we're at engagements, we're standing in the hallway that auditions, we're at young artist programs. So I have a, a giant matrix spreadsheet of the singers that I hear, especially those that I want to keep an eye on. Each time I hear them, I take notes and have, you know, they sang this and this on this day. I like this. I didn't like this. If they sang the same repertoire the next time, did it improve or not? If it's different repertoire, is it a better fit? Um, so, you know, there are definitely singers who make major shifts and, and absolutely change my outlook on them. Uh, there's a tenor who's on our roster, Dylan Morangello, who is a wonderfully talented character tenor. But the first time I heard him at Glimmerglass, he was singing really, you know, standard Italian leading men. And I didn't think it was the right fit. And I heard him probably four times more from when that first hearing was to when we signed him. And it slowly started transitioning to more and more character repertoire to, you know, now where the character repertoire is his entire package. And I think it fit better with his personality. It fit better with his acting. I mean, the voice really came alive and stuff like Mima and Aria the Goro, where there aren't a lot of tenors who want to sing that repertoire because it's seen as, you know, not as glamorous, which it probably isn't, but character tenors work forever. Um, so, I mean, that's someone who I tracked for years and years. And then when I finally heard him, the right package, the light came on. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there are singers who I hear once and I know there's a, there's a person I want to represent. There's a talent that I really believe in. And then there are singers who we track for years and years, especially, you know, when singers are in their 20s, even in their 30s, you can go through a major vocal shift in six months, in a year, um, where things just line up. You study with a new teacher. Technically, things just come together. Um, and it's a totally different instrument, a totally different presentation. And also, life experiences happen. You know, we as singers can't put our instruments in a box and put them away. So you get married, you get divorced, you have kids, you know, pet passes away. Anything that happens, like that all affects the instrument. So I think keeping that stuff in mind is really important as well. Um, but our audition process, so, you know, Stratagem's at about 50 artists now. We're not really looking too aggressively at past that. I feel like 50 is the sweet spot where my colleague and I can really provide the unique service that we do to each artist and to be available, you know, and on call for issues that come up much bigger than that. I think we'd be stretched too thin. Um, so we've gotten over 300 people reaching out to us for management in the last year and we've heard less than 10 and we've taken six. And I mean, it's just, it, we're not really, you know, I think we could have a roster of 200 if we wanted, but that's not what we want. And uh, we couldn't give the attention that we feel is needed uh, at that size. So, you know, I will have multiple conversations with an artist before we even hear them in person. I will do research about them with singers on our roster who have worked with them, with administrators that I trust who have worked with them, asking not only is this person a good singer, but are they a good colleague? Are they prepared? Is this someone you'd hire again? Uh, and I encourage every artist that considers us to do the same sort of research. Um, you know, ask singers on our roster if they're happy with us. Ask administrators who we work with, is this a manager you'd want to work with again? I think that two-way street of communication is incredibly important. And then if those things check out, we hear them in person for at least an hour of sort of playing whether the singer is willing to take our feedback. Is the repertoire the right fit? And, you know, I tell singers for that sort of session to not only bring the five artists that you have in your normal audition package, but to bring musical theater, to bring 
art song to bring stuff that you're working on because I want to see the fullest portrait of an artist in their repertoire as possible. And then we go out for either a coffee or a drink, depending on what time it is, and the preference of the artist to discuss where we feel the artist is going, what the career path would be, and if we feel like we're a good fit. And we give any singer that we hear live that courtesy, even if we're not interested, to, to give feedback. And, you know, singers take, and take what they want and leave what they don't want. But, you know, I feel it's if they get to the point where we're hearing them live, we want them to be the right fit. I think every adjudicator in a competition or a company wants you to be the person who they're going to hire. Um, and that's such a, you know, I know as a singer, I was really fearful of singing badly, but I think everyone on the other side of the table wants you to sing well. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the courtship is, you know, short or long, depending on what it is. There are definitely singers who I've known for 10 years where we have relationships with summer programs or from undergrad or anywhere, just the opera world is so small, where we're friends already and that transition to a business partnership is really easy. But then there are also people who I've never met in person who I've admired from afar who I reach out to as well. So yeah, it's it's a total crapshoot in terms of the process, but I think the research on our end and the harmony of the roster and the, com the camaraderie we've committed to on the roster, that personality of the entire whole is more important than the talent of any individual artist. And that really shines on our roster. A lot of people on our roster are friends anyway. And we had an audition last year. It was one of our last auditions of the year. And people hung out in the hallway. People were cheering for each other. Like it was like a sports team. And, and that's the sort of aura and, and vibe I want because you know, we're already competing against everyone else. Why are we competing against each other? There should be some sort of partnership there. And, you know, artists are really proud to be part of what strategy was created. And that makes me feel like I'm doing a good job. So two more questions for you. Um, one, the audition package. So I feel like American singers especially are now starting to understand the, the necessity to have new music in their package and for some early music in their package, because that's where these smaller companies are becoming more niche. How do you help singers decide on this repertoire, especially knowing that there are some pianists who can't play this stuff and there are some adjudicators who don't recognize this music? Number one is, you know, we as a management company have done the scouting to figure out who you're singing for, what their preferences are. And just being aware of that preconception of a company is incredibly important. You know, if you're singing for Sarasota, you're not going to bring in 21st century American repertoire, but that's not what they produce. If you're singing for a company like Haymarket, like Verity is probably not going to be the right fit. Um, and having that context is incredibly important for our singers. And just, you know, that's part of putting them in the position to succeed once they get that audition. And, you know, knowing even if a company doesn't provide the season repertoire, the style of repertoire that they usually produce. Um, and also, even if companies don't list publicly what they're doing, we've probably had a conversation with the administrator where we have at least an idea of what they're producing so we can cater a repertoire that way. Um, in terms of new music, we actually have started an initiative at Strategy during COVID of uh, reaching out to composers and librettists to increase the canon of American repertoire that's available for our clients. 
Um, you know, I love Glory Denied and Emily's Aria from Our Town as much as anyone, but we just don't need more singers singing that repertoire. And I think there are more American voices that need to be heard. And we, in the last seven or eight weeks, have reached out to, I think, 52 composers and librettos, and 46 have gotten back to us with entire catalogs of repertoire. Incredibly excited that a group of experienced, able, and, you know, musically active singers are putting their repertoire out there. Um, and people have been incredibly excited to have their repertoire be part of our artist packages. Um, and I think, you know, if you don't have a relationship with a composer or librettist, you haven't worked with them before, it's weird for a singer to sort of cold call someone and be like, hey, can I use your rep? Um, you know, and, and the circle goes round and round where, like, I want our singers paying for this repertoire if they do use it. So the composers and librettists are making money as well. And then when singers hopefully sing this stuff for adjudicators, maybe that turns on the light bulb and administrators are like, well, we should look into this composer. We should look into this librettist and produce them in the future. So for, every, you know, 95% of companies in this country, a 21st century aria is necessary. And I think it's really important for American singers to sing in our vernacular, to sing stories that are applicable to our experiences. And there are so many great pieces out there that just deserve to be in, in packages and to be heard. Kevin Putz, Missy Mazzoli, Greg Spears, Renee Orth, Paula Persini, Lemon Beecher. Like, I mean, it's incredible stuff. And, you know, these composers are more than willing to answer questions. They're more than willing to give feedback. And, you know, I wish I could ask Mozart what he meant when he put a dotted eighth instead of a sixteenth and arrest it. But we can ask these questions now. So I think it's really important. Um, you know, for the pianist question you asked, you know, I am very particular in what pianists our singers use. And I think if you have something that you know is difficult in your package, it's probably smart to bring your own pianist to every audition. And I think to create that bond between singer and accompanist is really important. And, you know, we get to a point where a pianist can really anticipate our singer's moves. They can anticipate when rubato is being taken when the singer needs a big breath, you know, that can only be created organically. And there are many accompanists who can really anticipate that stuff on first hearing, but it's always more predictable when you have that experience together. Um, so we very much curate the list of pianists that play for our singers in New York to the point where I actually, uh, you know, had a friend fly out from the West Coast for our audition season last year to play for most of our auditions to create that bond. And we hope to have her out, you know, this coming winter if we have an audition season. Um, so that collaboration is really intact, but also really integral to successive auditions. Um, you know, in terms of early music, I think when I was coming up as a singer, I think everyone needed a handle. And I think like Mozart, like Don Zetti, like every composer, there are some singers who are suited to that repertoire and there are some that aren't and i don't think there's one composer where one size fits all for every singer it's the same as you know knowing the traditions of that repertoire knowing what companies want to hear it knowing what companies are you know preparing to produce that sort of repertoire and then also knowing your panel and just knowing what their expertise is like if you have jane glover on your panel you really got to know your stuff <laughs> Uh, not that you shouldn't know your stuff for anybody, but, 
you know, this is someone who has literally wrote the book (laughs) on Kabbalah and Mozart's women, Mozart's woman book right now. Fascinating. Um, But yeah, I mean, you know, just knowing who's on your panel, I think that's incredibly important. And I think singers trust their talent more than they probably should and, and feel like they don't have to do the research, but just, you know, doing a 10 minute Google search could be the difference between getting higher and higher. So you already suggested that in this era of COVID, uh, you're doing more online consultations and now you're uh, helping uh, expand the repertoire for auditions. Are there any other things that you're doing uh, during COVID to serve your artists that's maybe unique to this time? Sure. So, yeah, we have a North American Managers Coalition that's been meeting once a week to talk about issues like force majeure, payment schedule, you know, when we're coming back to the arts in general, um, which has been incredibly helpful. And this situation is the first that's brought us all together, you know, from the largest corporate firm to the smallest boutiques. We all want to protect our artists. And I think having these discussions and, you know, the Agma Solos Coalition existing, like this crisis has pushed the industry to come together. And I think in this shitty time we're in, there is a silver lining in those relationships. And, you know, being part of that has been really enlightening for me in terms of what managers can do to really protect their artists and what we can do to get the industry back going again. Uh, We also have weekly Zoom calls with our whole roster to talk about what's going on, to check on individual artists, to give them a forum to discuss whatever issues, musically or not, they're going through. And those have been incredibly valuable to, you know, pick our artists for ideas and to have projects that they're working on. We had a financial advisor come in to talk to the roster two weeks ago. Uh, actually, who was a singer, um, which was incredibly valuable for her to understand, you know, what gig workers are going through on a regular basis and and what aid programs are available during COVID. Uh, And we plan to have more of those webinars for our roster as we move on through this time. So, yeah, I think it's just it's being proactive and also, more importantly, giving singers what they need at the time. Like we have singers who have asked us for homework from day one, who want to work on new repertoire, who want to redo their website. And we have singers who, you know, haven't come back online yet and are, you know, dealing with life stuff. And that's fine, too. And I think we really want to let every client come back at their own pace, especially with, you know, looming cancellations for the fall when everything for summer has been canceled and people have to go through the five steps at their own pace. So, you know, I think most of all, just being available for our artists to talk about not only their careers and and what next steps are in. Like, this is the role you should study, but also like, how life is going and, and just being a, a friend, um, you know, that is what I would want as a singer for my manager relationship. And that's what we start to give to each and every one of our clients. Are you uh, delaying retainer fees? We have never charged a retainer fee. Oh, ever. nice. Don't pay a retainer fee. That's that's advice number one for getting management. <laughs> but for commission fees, we actually have um, a system where when partial payouts are coming out for companies, which is very common, um, people can defer commission payments to the next time they get a full paycheck. So, you know, we are more than happy to work with our clients on 
you know, what works best for their finances. Uh, but yeah, no, Stratagem has never paid a retainer or, or charged a retainer, I should say. Uh, and we feel that we shouldn't get paid till our sounds get paid. Well, nice. Justin Warner, thank you so much. We can find your roster at stratagemartist.com. Is that the website? Perfect. Yes. Wow. Good. That was you got that domain locked down. The myth of Orpheus has been the subject of many firsts in opera. Now it's going to be an opera in a web episode. I don't even think I know what it is. That's next on the OBS. Opera class. Sports radio crass. This is Opera Box Score. This just in, the two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Opera Land this week. Reopening begins in Germany. Observing social distancing, a German theater cautiously restarted live concerts this week. The State Theater of Hesse in Weisbaden, which normally seats a thousand, had fewer than 200 audience members for a concert on Monday, featuring baritone Gunther Groisbuch performing Schubert and Mahler. Said Groisbuch of the experience, quote, at the beginning it felt almost like an art installation, an experiment. But from song to song, it very quickly became something very human. A blog post from Schmapera highlights two posts, one from Sonia Yoncheva and one from Anna Netrebka, which object to re- recent viral pictures showing a crowded plane juxtaposed with a socially distanced concert hall. Coincidentally, those pictures are probably from Groisbeck's recital. Uh, Netrebko in particular called on her followers to hashtag break quarantine, once again putting her foot in her mouth for the gram. In Austria, the Musikverein Wien has announced it may open in June. Dr. Thomas Einan, Einan rather, uh, noted that the Musikverein was currently preparing a new program that would be announced May 26th. The news comes as a surprise as Austria had closed all concert halls until the end of June. However, last week, the Austrian health minister introduced a plan to reopen the culture sector starting May 29th. In Canada, three of Victoria's largest arts organizations, the Victoria Symphony, Pacific Opera Victoria, and Dance Victoria, have announced they will be suspending physical programming for the next 18 months through 2021-2022. Pacific Opera Victoria was to present mainstage productions of Don Giovanni, the greatest opera, Carmen, the runner-up, and Death in Venice, which didn't even place, at Victoria's Royal Theatre and McPherson Playhouse, which remained closed for the foreseeable future. They have instead focused on Opera Etc., an online initiative that features free programming online. A study conducted in mid-May by Performance Research Theaters and performance arts have a steep uh, climb ahead in terms of bringing audiences back. The research found that even after the CDC and local governments say it's safe to attend large public events, 52% of respondents said they would attend fewer large public events and 60% of respondents noted that the idea of attending a big public event will scare them for a long time. The research also noted that 39% will attend major indoor concerts less often, 33% said they would attend theater and performing arts venues less often as well. 
A Buffalo-based startup company has developed drones to spray disinfectants in Broadway theaters. In the innovative system, the disinfectant is stored on the ground and pumped through a hose to the hovering drone, which then spreads it throughout the theater. Meanwhile, another drone drifts underneath it to make sure the hose does not get tangled in any of the seats. Quote, this technology reduces the need for human exposure, minimizes the costs of PPE, and can save a great deal of time and resources. That's from Will Schulmeister, the chief operating of, uh, officer of the company Eagle Hawk. Long Beach Opera has announced the 2021 Season of Solidarity performance schedule set to begin in January. Executive Director Jennifer Rivera said, quote, between Long Beach Opera and Yuval Sharon's productions as artistic director for the industry, the op opera has existed in parking lots, train stations, swimming pools, automobiles, and city streets during the past four decades in Los Angeles County. Together, we plan to continue to find creative ways to bring the incredible collaborative art form of opera to people in our community. Read the full season announcement at longbeachopera.org. A uh, friend of the show, Chicago Opera Theater, has announced its 2020-2021 season, which includes Rimsky-Korsakov's uh, Invisible City of Kitesh, Taking Up Serpents, a new opera by Kamala Sankaram and Jerry Dye, and Daniel Catan's Il Postino, we called that one, plus a semi-stage concert performance of a new opera by Vanguard emerging opera composer Matthew Racino, and a uh, friend of the show, librettist Royce Bavrek. Their fall performances of Invisible City are scheduled for late November, Lord willing. The Arena di Verona has announced its 2021 season, which will feature several notable performances with some of opera's greatest stars. Muti conducting Yoncheva in Aida, La Traviata with Eileen Perez, Lizette Oropesa and Yoncheva as well. And Turned Out with Anna Netrebko, Cav Page, and Verity's Requiem are also on the menu, along with a gala in July 2021 celebrating disgraced tenor Placido Domingo. Cool. This week, the Beanan School of Music previewed an experimental opera film entitled Orfeo Remote. Guided by director Joachim Schomberger and conductor Stephen Altop, instrumentalists and singers have recorded audio and video of the Monteverdi opera in locations all over the country. The performances will be edited into a film which will be released in five episodes beginning in late summer. Friend of the show, Anthony Roth Costanzo will be featured in an interactive concert experience with Jamie Barton, Sasha Cook, Leah Crescetto, and Will Liverman called Opera Jukebox on May 30th. Each singer will offer up three selections for audience members to choose from. Audience members will get a chance to vote with their wallets with all money raised going towards the artist relief tree. The performance will be streamed on Facebook, YouTube, and in the artist relief tree website. Exit stage right, John McCurdy, stalwart bass in roles large and small, died at age 91 during a career that spanned 38 years and encompassed 1,001 performances at the Met. Mr. McCurdy was admired for his rich, firm voice and poised, dignified stage presence. He sang 62 roles in the word and works of wide stylistic diversity, including notable world premieres, which included the inaugural performance of Barber's Anthony and Cleopatra, which opened the Met in Lincoln Center. English baritone Neil Howlett has passed away at the age of 85. Howlett spent 17 years within English National Opera, served as professor of the Guildhall School of Music and Drama from 1974 to 1992, 
where he became head of vocal studies and director of repertoire studies at the Royal Northern College of Music. Italian composer and pianist Ezio Bosso has passed away at the age of 48. He wrote ballet fil music, film scores, four symphonies, concertante music, and chamber music, and he frequently collaborated with Mario Brunello and Sergei Krylov. He's also worked with the London Symphony Orchestra, as well as the theater director, James Terrier, uh, and choreographer, Raphael Bonacella. Former BBC conductor John Poole has passed away at the age of 85. In 1968, Poole became the conductor of the BBC Symphony Chorus, going on to become director of BBC Singers in 1972, and conducted his first prom one year later. An advocate for new music, he founded the Académie Internationale in Parthenay, France, a workshop geared towards singers and conductors, and went on to join the conducting staff of the School of Music at the University of Indiana. And on this day, May 24th, it was the premiere of a lot of French operas, so take it away, Oliver. So, first performances, 1813, Meul's Le Prince Troubadour in Paris. In 1833, Marschner's opera, uh, Heinz Heiling, at the Königliches Opernhaus in Berlin. In 1834, Aubert's uh, Le Stoc ou l'Intrigue et l'Amour, also in Paris. In 1873, Le Libes, Le Roi, La in Paris. In 1893, first performance of an obscure Saint-Saëns opera called Frinet in Paris. In 1899, first performance of an opera that made it on the bracket, Massenet Cendrillon in Paris. In, eight, in 1918, here's one we've been waiting for, Bella Bartok's Bluebeard's Castle at the Budapest Opera. As far as birthdays for May 24th, we have Belgian tenor Charles Fontaine in Antwerp in 1878. In 1912, New Zealand soprano Dame Joan Hammond in Christchurch. In 1914, Italian baritone Giuseppe Valdengo in Turin. In 1921, Italian tenor Giuseppe Zampieri in Verona. And 1960, Paul McCreesh, the conductor who founded the Gabriele Consort. And finally, in 1970, baritone Michael Chioldi. And that's your two-minute drill. So, I hear that Ashley has something to say. Oh, I always, but today, I, uh, guys, I, <laughs> I feel like I rag on the Trebco a lot. And I wouldn't have to if she didn't keep doing things that needed ragging. I'm trying to find the most delicate way to express my feelings and emotions to her and Yancheva. And I think, I think the phrasing I'm looking for is kindly go fornicate thyself. Um, I don't know how else to say it in a way that won't get us an explicit label. Um, so I'm sure you've seen this uh, in, in various 
parts of social media. By the way, the uh, the photographs that they're using are from that recital that we mentioned in the two minute drill. I just here's here's what's frustrating to me is they're putting these photos side by side of these crowded airplanes, these you know spaced out appropriate concert halls, and their their point is we're angry, bring culture back. I get it. They they want to stop stupid rules. They wanna they wanted to have people break quarantine. Their anger is misplaced. Their anger should not be at the people who are following the CDC, the WHO. Their anger and their vitriol should be placed, and they have plenty of it clearly because they are so out of touch with the rest of the world. I'm sorry you don't have anybody close to you that's sick or dying, but a lot of people do. Hundred thousand today, a thousand of them featured on the cover of the New York Times. Uh, your anger and your vitriol should be placed in this, these photos specifically at the airlines, the airlines that are not following mm -hmm. the guidelines that have been put forward. So I get that you have a reason to be angry. We all have a reason to be angry and tired and frustrated and upset, but it's not at the industry that's trying to figure out how to function in this new world. Your vitriol should be placed with the airlines who are putting your life in danger at the cost of profit or for the sake of profit. That's where you need to be mad. I understand that you want to perform. I need you to understand that you can't in the way that you're used to for the sake of every life on the planet. And I'm going to need you to kindly pull that very long, beautiful head of hair that you have out of your posterior and try to understand the experience of others. End of rant. <laughs> it, it, it's a really unfortunate side effect of this social distancing and and shelter at home that we've been seeing is since people, since so many people are isolated from the ravages of this disease by staying home, you're starting to see people who lack the imagination to take a couple steps down the path of what will happen if we just open everything back up. And because it doesn't really feel like a problem when you're sitting in your room working from home, it's easy to forget just how like just how much on the razor's edge of an improvement we are and how easy it will be to give up all the ground that we worked so hard to get. Thank you for adding to that in a in a kinder way uh, and more <laughs> empathetic than than I did. I but I but I think that's true. I think that you're right. The isolation and it doesn't allow us to see the things that are tend to be right in front of us. But I'm also so confused at the disconnect. I always feel yeah. as if great artistry involves a great understanding of empathy and sympathy and the human condition. And how how can you be somebody who is a purveyor and a producer of this great humanistic art without understanding what all of these other populations have been going through. So that I think that adds to yeah. my frustration. I mean, let's be fair. I've had it in Inferno Tribe go for a while. This is just the icing on the the really crummy cake. Uh, but but you're right. I think it's I think it's important to keep all of those things in mind. But man, I saw this and I had a just just what's the what's the Madeline Kahn line include flames on the side. Of the yeah. <laughs> and I and I think you're really right to to point the finger at empathy as being really what we need here in all aspects of this pandemic, but especially as we're imploring people to continue to follow rules that are hard to do and no and that no one wants to do. Uh, it's real, that empathy of what will happen to other people if we don't follow these guidelines has to be our guiding principle. Exactly. We're, you know, all of us are, are suffering. It is not a contest. Uh, there are definitely people that are suffering more and less and worse and 
not as worse, uh, but all of our lives are affected. Many of us are out of work. Many of us are are frustrated with this situation, but we we don't know what we don't know about this illness and we don't know what we don't know about how this is spread. So the only thing that we have to go on are the guidelines of the top scientists in the world that are that are looking at this and paying attention to this. And and I know their messaging changes. Guess what? That's what happens with new information and scientific discovery messaging changes. But this is what we have right now. So I, I would implore all of us, myself included, to constantly check in and try to be empathetic and try to be understanding. And don't tweet things like break quarantine. Yeah, I mean, if you're really, well, the good th- if you're really paying the attention is- to the science, I'm, I'll, I'll just say this really quickly. If you're really paying attention to the science and not just listening to President Trump speak, you would understand that this stay at home is probably going to go on for longer than, you know, Memorial Day, you know, longer than Easter. It might very well, parts of it, be go, in, go into next year. So we should prepare for that. We shouldn't get our hopes up, you know. And then so for people to act this way and to say that, you know, culture is the thing that's being held back, you know, Ananda Trepko's performances are... You know, we're punishing Anna Trepko and Sonia Yancheva, you know, it's just so short sighted. Weston, you're about to say you also have to keep in mind that, you know, even as things start to open up, uh, whether you think those openings are premature or not, um, uh, the the theaters and operas are going to be some of the last things that do fully open up. There's going to be a point where more or less the entire economy is is going, uh, but uh, opera theaters will still be doing socially distances distance performance uh, performances because that's just kind of the nature of you know being an enclosed space for an extended period of time with many many other people with um, uh, specifically acoustic instruments blowing things all over the place. Those piccolos and. Um, those piccolos. It's always the piccolos. The blasted piccolos. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I was going to blame the English horn, but if you guys want to pick the pick, that's <laughs> I blame the uh, English horn for basically everything else. Uh, uh, <laughs> I think the uh, this is something that, you know, uh, it, it's unfortunate that, that the arts um, are so hit hard by this, but that's not a consequence of policy. That's a consequence of the specific conditions of, you know, the disease. Um, and because of that, I think there, we need to have more, more of an idea of solidarity around it. Once, you know, the economy is more or less open and back up uh, and benefits start being, you know, withdrawn, we still have to keep fighting for the people who cannot work in the arts to still be paid, to still have enough money to survive, to still have housing, things like this. Um, and that's kind of what we need to keep in mind when we're looking at something like the 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 airline versus the opera theaters. And we and we are starting to see how policy is going to come into it with you know the chain the shifting guidelines in Austria, this for this first recital in Wiesbaden with, with uh Grossberg, uh and contrast that with the with Vancouver with uh British Columbia in Victoria where they're able where they they must be confident enough that there will be some sort of funding and safety net, governmental or otherwise, there, that mm-hmm. in 18 months, the well won't have dried up. You know, like, right. that's not a decision that you make haphazardly. Right. And then you look at the programming, for example, at 
Long Beach, which, you know, they, they have flat out said, okay, we're starting in 2021. They're, they're calling 2020, not a wash, but like, this probably doesn't feel appropriate yet. And for that region of America, that region of Southern California, they're probably right, you know, because of the population densities that are in Southern California. So it's, and I keep thinking back to the last time all of these arts organizations took a really big hit, which at least in the States was the 2008 uh, housing crisis and the financial collapse that was there. Uh, you know, these were, you know, our organizations were some of the last to really kind of regain footing and solvency in, in that situation that was clear, that was only fiscal. This time we've got fiscal, but we've got physiological as well. And, and physiological confines that are in direct opposition with how we make our art slash money. So it's, it's going to be even more compounded than the types of things that we saw in 08 and the climb back in 09. Yeah. In some ways it's more existential than the, than the financial meltdown of <laughs> the last decade, but in other ways, you know, like since it is affecting everything and mm-hmm. not just um, like the financial crisis was specifically targeted towards the arts organizations in the way that if no one has money and you rely on the largest of your wealthy donors to make anything happen, like that spells a big problem for those sectors where that matters a lot. But like I do, and there will definitely be some overlap with the problems of, of 708 through I mean, we're, we're honestly still wading our way out of that crisis in some ways. And now this crisis hits. Um, and some of those tunes that our problems are going to be refrains and some of them are going to be brand new. And some of the things that were problems 15 years ago, I think are not going to be problems this time around just because it, just because everything is hit in such a existential way. Well, those are great points. As far as pivoting goes um, and Long Beach Opera's uh, delaying their season, uh, this Binan School of Music project is actually really cool. I wasn't expecting it to be as successful as it, it probably will be. But uh, full disclosure, three people on this panel have a relationship to Northwestern University. I won't say which ones. Um, Weston. Not me. <laughs> uh, but I, I participated in the symposium. I participated in the symposium that happened uh, on Friday. And uh, it's really cool. I mean, these singers, they were sent home. And they were given, you know, their parts and they sang their parts into a microphone. And then Stephen Alltop, you know, put together the orchestra and they, they're laying down the orchestration and continue underneath them. And then I don't know how they're filming their staging, but maybe they're asking their friends or whoever they're quarantining with to, like, just hold the camera while I do this action. And, yeah, so Joaquim has to um, give them direction. OK, now for this three measures go find a park and go hand a you know a flower to the camera you know and it's i just saw one scene of it and it it's so intricate and uh just kudos to them for you know for beginning to think about ways and how to do this i mean that houston grand opera figaro in the bedroom we saw last month or was it six weeks ago that was the beginning of that and now we're seeing whole operas built on zoom yes matt and uh, Northwestern, I'm sure they don't actually feel lucky because no college student who is currently in school during this feels lucky at all. But Northwestern is in better hands than most opera programs because uh, Joachim Schomburger has this background in video editing. That's like his thing. Right. So they can really, they their wings aren't tied quite so much 
as some of their colleagues are. I, ho I, I hope that they're still able to get a worthwhile experience out of the project. And it sounds like they will. Well, when this comes out, we will talk about it again. Uh, Weston, did you want to outro um, the clip we heard after Two Minute July? I didn't give you a chance to do that. Oh, yes. That was uh, 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 the end of Bluebeard's Castle, one of my absolute favorite operas. Um, that was uh, Walter Berry and um, um, uh, Krista Ludwig back when they were married, <laughs> um, singing together. Uh, in um, I mean, maybe it's a part of the reason they, they broke up. That's from the studio recording um, by Ivan uh, Kersex, I believe. Um, is that correct? I think so. Yeah, it's a hard name. Um, it's one of those uh, Istvan Kertesz. Kertesz? Yeah. Or something it. like that. I basically yeah. got it perfect is yeah. what you're saying when I said it just yeah. then, uh, <laughs> sounding completely different, but basically absolutely correct. Austin, we're very proud of you and yeah. all of your efforts. Yes. Thank you, Ashley. See, Ashley understands and values me, not like these jokers. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Former Dixon TA. <laughs> Anybody have, have another response before we go to good call? Here's what I'll tell you. I am excited to see season announcements because it gets back to that feeling of being able to plan for the future. Um, it's one of the things that's made this whole set of circumstances, and I've, I've harped on this before, but one of the things that's made this so hard to endure is the feeling that we don't know what's next. We don't know when this period will end and a new phase will begin. And even if these things end up being in vain. We get a second wave and some of these things can't happen. Just ha seeing organizations that I love and care about so much have this eye towards the future is very comforting for me. So, nice. Also, Kitesh slaps. <laughs> Good call. Bad call. On Opera Box Score. Okay, so we're in Good Call, Bad Call. Who would like to start? I'll go first. Uh, my my attention was pointed towards the teaser trailer for Opera Omaha's new production of Sweeney Todd. And uh, if you've been paying attention to my quarantine good calls, you'll know that Sondheim is very much my jam. Uh, and also that digital, op the digital opera excerpts online sometimes are not my jam because they feel clunky and just remind us of everything that we are not. But one that does not feel clunky is this Opera Omaha teaser. It's so charming. It's so clever. They make it look like a... Hollywood Squares game show and to see friend of the show Zachary James who is possibly the nicest person I've ever talked to in my entire life look as frightening as he does a Sweeney Todd <laughs> is really exciting Weston my good call uh, if we're you know in the category of things where uh, we're obsessed with and are our jams specifically um, so last week, uh, there was a new recording out by Philip Glass. Um, this is uh, his music in eight parts, which was composed in 1970, was completely lost until a couple years ago when it was found at an auction. And the Philip Glass Ensemble basically put together a version of it with the uh, forces of the new on, uh, Philip Glass Ensemble, uh, the current one, I should say. And they decided to, uh, they were going to take it on tour, but obviously that couldn't happen. So instead of taking it on tour, they recorded it remotely, put it all together, uh, and uh, released it uh, this past Friday on Wagner's birthday, a little Wagner's birthday gift for all of us, this new old piece by Philip Glass. And uh, it is also a bop. <laughs> Great, Ashley. 
Um, just another shout out and, and love fest moment for uh, Jenny Rivera and Long Beach Opera. Uh, their their season looks amazing. Um, speaking of Philip Glass, there's going to be some Philip Glass. There's going to be some Peter Maxwell Davies. Uh, they're going to do a really cool uh, double bill with Pure Lunaire and Voices from the Killing Jar. Just everything mm. about their season looks so cool. But more importantly, what I would em encourage and implore people to do uh, is to actually watch the Facebook video where uh, Rivera announces the season. There is a, and of course, yes, we just interviewed her. She's a friend of the show. But I think just as a, uh, as an executive director and CEO, her her video is is genuine. It is the right amount of impassioned. Uh, it's a really great explanation for how this season fits in with who they've been and who they want to be. Um, it's it's just a really lovely video that, again, kind of gave me so much hope for the future, both in, in general as a world and for this season. I cannot wait to be in Long Beach in January for the opening of their season, which I'm going to do. Who's up for a road trip? Nice. <laughs> yeah, we have to definitely do a road trip in separate cars so we can socially distance. <laughs> Um, my good call, two quick ones, uh, as predicted, the Opera Atelier uh, virtual event together apart was super classy, had beautiful transitions and no technical difficulties. I know that Marshall Pankowski, uh, the co-artistic director, is very um, exacting and specific about what he wants. And I feel like they were able to achieve their vision for the event. And hats off to Megan Lindsay, who sang Zephyretti which is an aria uh, from Mozart's opera, Ida Manea, if you don't know it, and is one of the most exposed arias of all time. Like, you basically have to do scales um, with very little accompaniment. And, um, yeah, she just sang it so gracefully with so much poise, and I was just really impressed. Yesterday, so we're recording on May 24th, um, and yesterday, John Brancy and Peter Dugan, who were our guests um, in 2018, I want to say, God, it's almost two years ago, in September, um, they started a series, the first of their series of live recitals, um, which they're recording. John is in Los Angeles, I think, and Peter is in New York. And uh, I just could not believe that it was live because they were so well coordinated. Um, and that was one of the questions. They did a Q&A after they sang... Um, and they said, how are you coordinating this? Because we're just, for those of us who are trying to create music this way, we know that the delay is a, is a thing. Um, it's that they have performed together so much that Peter Dugan can anticipate John's phrasing and account for the delay. And so it sounds like they're exactly lined up. And uh, I'm just going to play a little bit here for you so you can hear what this sounds like. John Brancy was an amazing voice yesterday. So that was from their Facebook Live, uh, which happened on May 23rd, and supposedly there'll be more. So uh, like John Brancy's Facebook page to see when that happens again. All right. Thanks, team, for a great show. Allow me to give a shout out to Heather in Santa Clara, California, for donating to us. Appreciate the donation, especially in these troubled times. That's it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about Opera. 
Our announcer is Norm Waddell at VoxerShorts.com, V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S.com. Theme song Vodka Inferno is written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share and comment on our posts. On Twitter, we're at Opera Box Score. Yes, we do tweet. And this podcast version of our show available wherever you get your pods. Creative consultant for Opera Box Score is Oliver Camacho. Thanks again to our guests, Emily Pugareltz and Justin Warner. For Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, and Ashley Hardgrave, I'm George Cedarquist asking you to continue the conversation about opera as we wrap up the merry, merry month of May. We're back with an all-new podcast next Wednesday, June 3rd. More opera news, more hot takes, more pride. Join us. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. First and foremost, in these surreal times, I hope that you and the people that you love are healthy and safe. Here at the OBS, we continue to do our show, and we're continuing to document all things opera-related in the time of corona, and we want to hear your voice. Are you an employee of the opera world whose work has been affected by COVID-19, a singer who has lost a job or gained a different job, a fan who's desperate to see something live in person and can't, let us know how you're coping with your own shelter-in-place order. Send your message or your voice memo up to 60 seconds to operaboxscore at gmail.com and we might feature you on our show. We want to hear from you.